Lucas on Life. Hello, I'm Jeff Lucas. Welcome to Lucas on Life. Just this last week, the Times newspaper ran a feature article about how much we human beings tell lies. And sorry, chaps, the focus of the article is especially on men. Apparently, we are more careless with the truth. The conversation has been prompted by the ongoing saga of former President Donald Trump, currently in court in New York, accused of telling fibs about his earnings and net worth. In the Times article published this last Monday, reporters Simon Mills and Hannah Betts wrote, the New York trial frames Trump's whole adult existence as an unending fib spree, a porky pie panorama taking in everything from his height to his weight to the size of his inauguration crowd and his golfing prowess. He cites famous people as close friends when it suits him, then denies all acquaintance when they fall out of favour. No one has met more people in his lifetime than Trump. End of quote. Tony Schwartz, the ghostwriter of Trump's bestseller, The Art of the Deal, suggests that applying male logic, a nice way perhaps of saying lying, is second nature to Mr. Trump. Schwartz writes, Trump has the ability to convince himself that whatever he is saying is true, or sort of true, or at least ought to be true. But it's then that the focus of the Times article switches away from the apparently beleaguered former president to you to me, because the writers suggest that with exaggeration and half-truth, we all lie fairly frequently, and again, according to them, men are the worst offenders when it comes to sticking to the truth. We chaps lie about how much we drink. We're in denial. We say that our waistlines are 32 inches, conveniently forgetting that the girth of our stomach is 38 inches. We describe ourselves as runners, which might mean that we own some running shoes and we went for a quick jog last March. And then let's ponder this. Do we Christians, the people who say that we follow the Jesus, who is the way, the truth and the life, do we tell the truth to each other and to others outside of the faith about what it is really like to follow Jesus? To tell the truth. That's our slightly uncomfortable theme right here on Lucas on Life here on Premier Christian Radio. Having a conversation with a huge, topless, tattooed man was quite a challenge. Jim was built like a planet, his gigantic stomach covered with manic, tattooed scribbling. I tried to focus as we chatted, but it's hard to have a conversation with a chap while tilting your head slightly sideways to try to read what's inscribed on his left breast. I'd been speaking at a Christian open-air event in a park and Jim had parked himself on the grass and was responding to the blistering sunshine in the usual British way. You remove clothing, mock the idea of sunscreen, pop open a can of lager or three and end the day looking like a poached salmon. He waved me over, warmly thanked me for my little talk and then promptly poured out his heart. I thought that Jim had probably never darkened the doors of a church, and I was completely wrong. Many years before, at the tender age of 17, he'd given his heart to Jesus, as he described it. A breathlessly excited convert at a church youth camp, he went forward to respond after a white-hot sermon. And at first, it all went very well. Back then, life was simpler for Jim. He had few worries, big dreams, and no message to his mum scrawled across his abdomen. 
But as he put it, taking another slurp of lager, his conversion hadn't worked. He shook his head sadly, wiped his mouth, and then, I think, wiped away a stray tear. I was expecting angels to show up and fireworks to explode, but nothing happened. I really wanted to feel something, to hear a voice, to to bump into an angel, but there was nothing. So I packed it all in and walked away. Now, three marriages and three divorces later, and a string of adulterous dalliances besides, there were plenty of regrets for Jim. He'd spent more than a few weekends languishing in prison cells, the only way to restrain his boozed fueled rage. He shook his head sadly as he surveyed in seconds a lifetime of bruises and bruising. He sighed, sometimes I've wondered if my life would have turned out better if I hadn't walked away from Christianity. Do you think it's too late for me, Jeff? All of that made me wonder. Perhaps Jim was simply the victim of his own false expectations. He just assumed that if he was a Christian, the pathway would light up before him daily. But then I wondered if we can be guilty of using vocabulary that makes the Christian life sound more exciting and filled with dramatic experiences than it actually is. There's no conspiracy here, no intention to mislead. But as we use shorthand and metaphor to try and communicate our faith journeys, we can unwittingly paint faith in sensational colours and therefore not tell the truth. I used to describe prayer as a conversation until some decades on, I've come to realise that this could be misleading because most of the time, prayer for me is not a conversation. God spoke to me this morning, I announced breathlessly, perhaps suggesting that I awoke to the sound of a booming voice that rattled the alarm clock and that I have an ongoing hotline to God and I'm enjoying happy little chats with him throughout each and every day. But in truth, 99% of my praying is me doing the talking. Sometimes I get a whisper, a nudge, and maybe once a decade or two, something more, but most of the time it's not a conversation. Now, in saying this, I run the risk of being tarred as a carnal soul by some who'd like me to either focus and listen more or perhaps retire to the Sahara hogged up in a horsehair shirt. But I have to tell the truth about the way prayer is for me rather than what I'd like it to be. Sometimes something similar can happen when it comes to sung worship because I warble to God I could sing of his love forever when in reality I get restless after about 35 minutes, especially if I feel I've been singing the same song forever. You see, we can paint a verbal portrait of faith as being like one long exhilarating afternoon in a theme park. It's all thrills and spills and experiences. And after a while, we start to believe in the magic kingdom ourselves, as I found out when I went to Disneyland and actually approached Mickey Mouse and asked for an autograph. Only as I walked away did I realize that I'd just asked a sweating college student togged up in a furry fancy dress costume to honor me with a signature. Unwittingly, I'd bought into the myth myself. Meeting Jim has made me more determined than ever to refuse to airbrush or tart up the Christian walk, but rather to tell the truth about faith, as Scripture tells it. The Bible clearly acknowledges that we don't have a 2020 vision of God now. One day, we'll see Jesus face to face. But in the meantime, it can be a bit like peering through fogged up double glazing. That's why it takes faith 
to do faith. So, when talking about the Jesus who is the truth and what it's like to follow him, let's tell the truth. We're talking about telling the truth. There are some well-worn phrases that really scare me. When my fiendishly grinning dentist says, this will hurt a little, this usually means that he's going to attack my mouth with a hammer and chisel. When the airline pilot gently advises that the landing might be a little bumpy, he's preparing me for a roller coaster ride, which might include my headbutting the overhead baggage compartment and revisiting my breakfast. And when fellow Christians announce that they're about to speak the truth in love to me, I'm tempted to head for the nearest nuclear a fallout shelter. Usually, when they murmur this indication of kindly torture to come, it means that they won't speak the truth in love, that is. Because if they were going to do that, they wouldn't have to issue the health warning. Most of us have met the seriously spiritual person who is determined to verbally cannibalize us, but plans to do so in the nicest, most biblical way, all in the best possible taste. Let's face it, sadly, we've all been that predator ourselves at times. Words easily become weapons of destruction because of the power that they have to bruise. So we need to make hesitation a habit before verbalizing our concerns and jumping headlong into conflict. Silence and pause help us to respond rather than react. And then there are some small issues that can be left undiscussed, lest we become people who are always on safari to rebuke everybody about the tiniest detail. It's too easy, people of principle that we are, committed to truth, to become Pharisees who strain at gnats and swallow large camels, humps and fur and all. And of course, we all do well to reflect rather than rush in brain in neutral, mouth in fifth gear, because we might just be wrong. Surprising as it seems to some who seems to feel that the universe would explode if they ever made an error, there are times when we just get the wrong end of the stick, whereupon silence is indeed golden. But in thinking about telling the truth, I've been wondering recently about the tendency that we all have to do the very opposite of that kind of conflict-hungry behavior, and that is to not speak the truth at all. Under the guise of Christian niceness, we end up agreeing with each other privately and then going elsewhere to broadcast our disagreements. We shake hands and hug and then, unwilling to be honest, retreat back into the shadows. This is called lying in love. And there are some church situations where, sadly, if you disagree and speak up about your disagreement, you'll be quickly accused of being divisive. No, I'm, I'm not being divisive. It's just that I've got a brain and an opinion. Or you might be accused of being rebellious. And it's not that we want to stone you, but just a little explanation would be helpful, dear leaders. Worse still, the implication can be that if we were just as deep as the real go-getters in the church, then we would surely understand what's going on. As it is, we must be blinded by our sad fleshly immaturity. And when we advance a little, we will see the light like the rest of the spiritual Goliaths around here. All of this is a control mechanism, and when used to silence a genuine inquiry or a real concern, it should be identified clearly for what it is, bunk. 
And if you think that I'm pointing the finger exclusively at leaders and ministers here, well, then you're quite wrong because they too have been devastated by that little spiritual group in the church who seem to think that they are Olympic swimmers when the rest of us can only hope to sport with stripes. For younger listeners, in the old days, we got a little white cloth stripe to sew onto our swimming trunks when we successfully swam a width of the swimming pool. I still wear mine with pride. The call to be slow to speak and quick to listen is obviously a biblical one, but let's not get into pleasant unreality and think that we're honouring God as we do so. It is awkward and uncomfortable to have to push through, to explore our differences, resolve our conflicts. But with God's help, we ought to be able to take those painful journeys and still hold on to each other in fellowship and friendship. So let's be thoughtful, gracious, willing to give the benefit of the doubt and be truthful, real and authentic with it. And I say that, to coin a phrase, in love. As we've been thinking about the need for us to be people of truth and kindness, let's realise that sometimes we can be economic with the truth, as I said earlier, because we want to be kind and loving. So let's just think about that for a few moments more. Sometimes in churches where there's a genuine commitment to encouragement, we can so want to cheer people on, we end up barking them up the wrong tree, nudging them to do what God has not called or equipped them to do. Someone preaches a fairly mediocre sermon and is promptly told that it was just quite brilliant. Where the gifts of the Spirit are operated, a seriously dodgy prophecy is shared on a Sunday morning. The congregation-wide mass clenching of buttocks means that everyone knows the God of the universe most likely has not spoken, but for fear of crushing the person who brought the prophecy, or worse still, offending him or her, everyone stays tight-lipped. The emperor's clothes remain unruffled. And we drift into the twilight zone of self-deception when we're constantly told to step out and do what we can't do. The call to get out of the boat and walk on the water is attractive, but sometimes we need to encourage people to grab hold of the oars and stay put. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I hear someone muttering. I can do anything, but bluntly, we can't. We can't fly without tickets, give birth to twins if we're men, play the bassoon or speak Cantonese. If it's Christ who strengthens us, that means he will surely only strengthen us to fulfill his calling in our lives. Instead of constantly telling people that they can do anything, perhaps we should talk a little bit more about knowing our limits and spheres. Once upon a time, many years ago, I was an occasional worship leader, but thankfully the day came when a trusted but unsubtle friend told me that worship leading was not really my primary gift and that the body of Christ would probably let out a collective sigh of relief if I would pack my guitar away for good. I'm glad that they spoke up and brought truth to me. Recognizing what I couldn't do was a painful but enlightening step on the pathway of discovering what I could do. The wounds of a friend are faithful, if not always welcome. So, let's be kind, gracious, caring, loving, and ask God to help us to be people of the truth. See you next week. Lucas on Life.